tell me about some of your favorite parts about being in social work and being a counselor. Yeah. Wow, the face just lit all. up. Wow. Oh. <laughs> um, I feel so, so cheesy, um, but I feel so lucky to have my job. I'm like literally constantly learning. I'm always taking classes. Welcome back to a Modern Men podcast. I'm your host, J.D. Farrell. And I know you're not used to seeing me on Wednesdays now, but like we said, we just debuted a Modern Woman podcast with Brianna Donnell, and she will be having her podcast released every Monday, and I will be coming to you every Wednesday. And then we got Fargo Watch Party coming to you every Friday, still hitting hard season two of that with Stephen Merriweather. So hope you like that content. I'm excited for you to listen to this podcast today. I'm speaking with Alyssa, who is a licensed counselor practicing out of New York City currently. And she has a lot of patients that, uh, a lot of her patients deal with trauma and ruptured relationships. And she talks about her experiences with her clientele and some coping skills she gives them and maybe some coping skills she would give you or maybe some of those out there experiencing some higher levels of trauma. So I really hope you enjoy that. Before we get into her interview, I really want to just talk about, I don't know, I just want to have a moment of silence. The Derek Chauvin trial did just complete, and I'm very happy that he was convicted of all three counts, but it's just a start, and it's not an attack on police because everyone has to do their job. I just hope keeping people accountable leads to reform because that's all I really want. I want to change what policing is. I want to change what community is and what our neighborhoods are because America is better when we're all better. And so, yes, it is a start and prison is not a place that anyone deserves to go to because the prison system is completely messed up, but too many black, brown, yellow, whatever ethnicity, race, creed, anyone, even white people are getting harmed by the police and that needs to change. Yes, a disproportionate amount of people, those of people of color, but the idea and the systematic policing and racial inequalities that are in our community, those need to change. And that's kind of just my point on why things like the Derek Chauvin's of the world need to be prosecuted. So that's enough on that. I really hope you enjoy my interview today. Here it is. How are you doing, Alyssa? I'm well. How are you? Good. It's been an early morning. I'm I'm excited. Are you nervous? I am nervous. <laughs> um, I've never done podcasting before, so a little nervous, but it's fine. No, see, just be yourself. Just talk. You'll be good. Welcome back to a Modern Men podcast. I'm your host, JD Farrell, 
And today I'm so excited to be joined by Alicia, uh, Alyssa Assenfarb. So how you say your last name? Did I get that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. How are you doing today? Um, well, how are you doing? Great. Yeah. I love the vibe just in the background of your office. It looks very comforting and very welcoming. Thank you. You know, I didn't have any pictures up there up until maybe two weeks ago. It was just a blank slate and it was a little bleak. So I thought I'd get some stuff. So I think that they just knew this was happening. That's what the sign. (laughs) Totally. So I want to start off by asking a little bit about your background, educational background, and kind of what led you to your passion for counseling and what kind of counseling do you do right now? Sure. So my educational background, I have my degree in social work. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Um, Most of my training is in clinical trauma. Um, And then recently, within the last couple of years, I've gotten a little more interested in psychodynamic therapy. So it's more interpersonal, more relational, um, and less skill-based, more exploring. Okay. And have you always wanted to get into counseling or did you stumble into it? That's a good question. This is always a tough question for me. Um, So I first got into social work specifically when I was working at a camp for kids with cancer in high school. And I found myself really, it was actually a camp for kids with cancer and their siblings. Um, So I found myself really interested in the dynamic between those siblings and the kids with cancer and then the dynamic between the siblings and the parents. So that's when I first started getting interested in like, um, I guess relational work and counseling. Um, but then I went to social work school and I really thought I was going to do medical social work and yeah. just found myself so much more interested in um, like PTSD, trauma and all. I started realizing that was why I was interested in the siblings in the first place is because of all the trauma symptoms they were experiencing as a result of being a sibling of a kid with cancer. And so a lot of your work, you said, consists of a lot of trauma patients, a lot of uh, relational work as right, correct? Yes. Yeah. And what are some of the misconceptions of trauma, I guess? Uh, What do you consider trauma, I guess, to start with? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So typically for my mind goes in a hundred different directions for this question. So there's big T trauma, which is usually single event. Um, and it really overwhelms the body's capacity to cope. So typically there's a really big event like rape or sexual abuse, which can be chronic, but sometimes there's like one event that really um, hones in there. And it starts causing things like flashbacks or hypervigilance. Um, and these are symptoms of PTSD. And then there's more little t trauma, which is longer term, typically relational, which is usually the work I do um, and can be more like, I think of systemic issues like racism or poverty. And then I also think of things like um, domestic violence or interpersonal issues or emotional abuse. Yeah, as well. Uh, So most of the people that you see usually deal with relational issues and trauma. They, both of these things go hand in hand, correct? Totally. Um, It's a little hard to differentiate between relational issues um, and trauma. Yes, I would say that both of them do. Do you think people usually minimalize that subject? And I guess maybe the trauma associated with those relationships, just the common ones? Yeah. So I guess when you say um, experiencing interpersonal issues, tell me a little bit more about what you mean. 
Okay. Uh, I'm maybe problems making relationships with friends and family, or maybe broken relationships because going through different uh, foster homes or something like those people who maybe have trouble connecting and connecting with loved ones, connecting with friends, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, Basically the way I assess for that stuff is there's two different facets of trauma. There's the hypervigilance and the hyperarousal. And then there's the hypo arousal and the hyper is more like a sensitive nervous system. You're really on edge. You're really anxious. You don't trust people. You're hypervigilant to the people around you. And then there's the hypo arousal, which is more disconnection, isolation, numbness, um, dissociation. So there are people who um, will kind of numb out and not realize what a big deal. They'll come in and they'll say, I'm lonely and I don't know what's going on. I have people around me. Um, but I just don't feel connected. And you start to realize that they're like feeling really numb in situations or they're feeling disconnected as a protective skill. Um, So they do minimize it. They're like, it's not me. It's the people around me. They just like, don't know me well enough. And then you start to explore and you realize that they don't let them know them well enough because there's fear involved. They want connection and they're afraid of connection. And then there's the hyper arousal, which I notice is less minimized um, because it's more, apparent it's really anxious it's really like I need people around me um so I'm going to tell them absolutely everything about me and hope they stay and then if they don't I feel abandoned and then they're like I'm being vulnerable everybody's telling me to be vulnerable I don't know what the problem is (laughs) um but it's more like an anxious vulnerability and it's more like um compulsive trying to get people to stay yeah Yeah. and do you think these are exhibited and like people exhibit these both of these things or just usually one of them? Um, Sometimes they go back and forth, uh, but usually it's just one of them. Just one. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I guess what are some of the main problems of trauma that some of your clients personally have been going through? Obviously no names and stuff like that, but yeah, just as minimal as, as small and as large as the problems. That's a good question. So mostly, I think my clients, I see people mostly in their 20s and 30s. So it's a lot of dating issues. Um, I notice that my clients will start dating somebody and want to keep the connection so badly um, because there's been so much abandonment in the past or so much interpersonal turmoil that they're like, this person is finally going to be the one. I need this connection. Um, And they'll kind of selectively inattend to the red flags that are showing up in the relationship. So for example, they'll say, oh, my friend saw the guy I'm seeing kissing somebody else. Um, But it's not a big deal because he said that's how they do it in their country they're from, or that's just um, the way he interacts with people in his building. Like he gets really close with them and then they kiss hello, goodbye. Um, And it's kind of just like a selective inattention to these things that are actually, um, if you did have, if these people did have the ability to trust their own gut or be more connected with their body, they'd be able to tell, um, oh, something's not right here. And I bet that's really hard dealing with that clientele in New York too, where just, yeah, the variety. And then everyone, of course, trying to find someone just so much out there and everyone's dating constantly. Totally. Especially with like all these issues of abandonment and disconnection. Like I think the nature of dating in New York is so surface and so disconnected and so um there's a meme circulating and it's like 
first step is sex. Next step is um, something else. And then the last step, like third base is talking about your childhood traumas. <laughs> and I was like, this is so New York. Like this feels so New York because it's so surface until it's not surface. Yeah. And then it's really intense. And then it can get really, um, it's like that love bombing, like volatile. And that's what and you've been looking for. So you just latch onto it. Cause yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like um, they hold on so tight to these things because they want to believe them. Yeah. Okay. And I guess now we're dealing with a little bit more um, talking about the serious parts of trauma. And do you think, is it healthy for people to kind of black out the memories of those uh, past situations? Is that healthy? That's a good question. So it's, and it's a tough question because we, they block them out because they're so painful. Yeah. So in order to be a functioning person every day, you can't remember, you can't hold on to like the most traumatic thing that happened to you. Um, so blocking it out is called dissociation um, and repression. So they just like don't remember. Um, but what we see winding up happening is when they don't cognitively remember it, they physically remember it and emotionally they remember it and it comes out in different ways. So it'll come out, for example, if a child was... Um, had an instance of sexual abuse um, and they don't really remember it, they wind up seeking it out in later, later relationships. So like not actually seeking out sexual abuse, but that power and control dynamic you okay. find is so much more common in people who have been abused, in, even if they don't remember it. Yeah. So if you don't address, address it consciously, your subconscious will inherently be seeking that out. Yes. Oh. We have a very finely attuned unconscious unfortunately and I guess what would you say is the best way to go about addressing those issues that maybe those repressed memories that are too difficult to deal with on a day-to-day basis or how do you go about clients hmm. how would you go about getting them to address those issues so I noticed people don't really come in with complaints about repressed memories probably just because they don't remember it so what they'll come in is complaints about a hundred other things Mm-hmm. Um, and like repression is not as common as like the general idea of trauma. So I've only had a couple of clients with repressed memories. Um, but I had one client who like started having dreams about her experience. Um, and then came in and said, I'm having these dreams. I don't know where they're from and I'm terrified. Yeah. And then with further exploration and like, you have to feel safe in the relationship. She was finally able to get to like, oh, maybe I was sexually abused. Um, but how you deal with it. So I'd say that first, developing safety and trust in the therapeutic relationship is number one. Um, Remembering that like connection for them in the past has been really scary. It's led to abuse. So feeling connected to your therapist can feel really threatening even. So it's a really, um, it takes a lot of time. You want to build trust, you want to build a relationship. And eventually, usually they're able to, if there is something there, either come up with it or understand that their symptoms are a result of something that they don't remember happened um and then work with it from there it's a lot of like body coping and a lot of learning to trust um your symptoms if something tells you there's danger there's probably or there could be danger um unless you're hyper vigilant in which if something if your body says there's danger there's probably not danger so you want to do a lot of coping skills and just get them to figure out where they are on the spectrum of hypo to hyper aroused. All right. All right. 
great segue. You're, we're talking about coping skills and now we're talking about those situational coping skills, mm-hmm. All right? For someone who maybe were in a fire, maybe had childhood abuse, sexual abuse, and mm-hmm. they, those, that past experience kind of, they're not allowed to go back into those situations without having an external reaction. I guess, mm-hmm. how would you deal with those people? How would you allow them to cope with those situations? Um, they're not allowed. Tell me a little bit more about what you mean when you say they're okay. not allowed to go back into the situation. Not, not mm-hmm. or maybe mentally, like, or they, there is a reaction, a physical reaction to them going back to that situation. Someone who was burned previously yeah. around fires, someone who was abused, now not wanting to be in, like, and that affects relationships with a future partner. Same thing from mm-hmm. childhood abuse, then not being able to maybe be touched in any type of way because of that type of abuse and. That's such a good question. I see that constantly. Um, People who have been abused, especially remembering um, that connection, it's really human to want connection. But when connection is dangerous, you have a drive to get connection and you have a drive to pull away from connection. Um, So this is what causes all the turmoil in relationships and in people's lives who have experienced trauma. Um, But basically what, if we're thinking of like concrete coping skills, there's three categories. There's cognitive coping skills, which is using the power of the mind to kind of think about category games or um, what else is a silly one? Like naming a fruit for each letter of the alphabet, (laughs) like really just going through and finding silly things that will distract your brain and make you stop ruminating. Okay. Um, Next is emotional coping. So that's talking about reaching out to a friend who you really trust or giving yourself a hug or um, right, remembering a mantra so we'll come up with mantras that feel safe for clients that they can go over yeah. um, and the last is physical so physical can be working out um, but it can also be using your senses so one of my clients love is going through your five senses so naming five things you see in the room four things you feel physically on your body three things you hear around you two things you smell if you can and then one thing you taste if you can um, so really grounding your mind back in your body. Okay. I guess because that's what happens when they're going back in that situation. It's like an out-of-body experience and they're not in the present. They're going back to that moment and those totally. grounding techniques. So okay. that's what that's really what a flashback is, is like not so much a cognitive memory, but a full body visceral response. Yeah. So instead of one also that's really helpful for my clients is reminding them what year it is, what day it is, how old they are, and the amount of control they have now mm-hmm. versus the, how little control they had when they were a seven-year-old and like totally subject to their parents' whim. Yeah. And wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Moving on to a little bit of some rust, rup, ah, ruptured relationships now. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. And a lot of the people you said you deal with people that are dating and they have, I guess it's not a problem making relationships. It's a problem kind of seeing the relationships or uh, kind of removing themselves from the picture and seeing it from a third person point of view. Did that make mm-hmm. sense of me explaining it? Totally. Um, I think it made sense to me, like kind of looking at it objectively versus yes. getting caught up in the need. There we go. I couldn't yeah. get the word us out. <laughs> That's okay. Um, yes. So I guess I see a little bit of both. I do see a problem making relationships um, 
for clients, especially who are like so caught up in their defenses that they don't even realize that they're defensive. Um, and I see this more often with men than I do women. Um, men who are more objectifying or more, I see it a lot with men who have childhood trauma in terms of physical abuse, mostly with their father. So they'll get really caught up in like lying in order to get out of um, fearful situations because it reminds them of being really afraid when they were younger and that's how they got out of situations that were scary to them. Um, so I see it harder for men in terms of making relationships, but for women, I see once they're in relationships, it's really hard to maintain it. Yeah. Um, obviously I'm like totally sweeping generalization. It happens yeah. for both genders, yeah. both. Um, but this is just more often what I see. Um, for women, I find that they get really anxious and they find coping skills that have worked for them in the past to hold on to their relationship. So for example, I have one client who like wipes out her whole personality and just agrees with everybody, everything her partner says, or um, she's just not opinionated. There's no life to her. She just is very small and very bland because yeah. when she was younger, when things were scary for her, she couldn't disagree with the people around her. She would get really hurt. Um, and I would so, yeah, say, it comes out in both ways. Mm -hmm. As an independent woman, do you see her as a strong woman individually? And then once she's in a relationship, it's like she completely crumbles to... Totally. She is such a badass. Um, she, and she's even... I even see her as strong in the relationship because when you really think about it, these skills are so adaptive. They're survival skills. Yeah. Um, and if she didn't do that when she was younger, she would have been severely abused, like probably even more than she's already been abused. Mm -hmm. um, so like that I see as, like I literally get goosebumps, like that I see as the most strength. Um, and it's really why I went into social work or trauma work is because I see how all these symptoms can be, while they are so painful, are also so adaptive and helps right. them survive. Because yeah, step one is just surviving and then you can, all right, let's hone those skills in and like improve and work yeah. on them. Yeah. Right. Like uh, that higher, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And with a lot of the guys, you say a lot of women just can't think objectively. I guess, how, how do you get them to start to think objectively from their perspective? I can't talk this morning. That's okay. Um, you said it was an early morning today. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. So that's when the therapeutic relational work really comes in. Um, I'm really apt to bring myself into the room. Mm -hmm. um, and if a client gets, so for example, this is actually a male client, but I had a client the other day who our session went a couple minutes over and he panicked and he was like, oh my God, like you must be so annoyed at me. I can't even believe I did that. Um, I went over our session and I had, it's kind of bringing myself into the room. I remember, like he, in that moment, what he was feeling was scared. Yeah. He was having like a kind of a visceral flashback of like, am I going to get hurt here? Is she going to be disappointed in me? Is she not mm -hmm. going to like me anymore? So I bring in a new experience for him and introduce him to a different level of safety. So what I wind up saying is um, you can trust that I'll hold my boundaries. If something makes me uncomfortable, I will tell you. Um, but I'm okay with going two minutes over the time of our session every now and then it happens. Yeah. Um, and he was like, oh, I didn't even think that you would be okay with that. It didn't even like cross his mind that that would be fine. So I guess the answer to your question is just really reintroducing new experiences 
of safety during the moments of fear that they wouldn't even conceptualize because they've never experienced it. And I guess that would be the same way for you're saying the people who don't want to open up as much, same thing. You're trying to conceptualize new ways of thinking, open a new safe space for them that they were previously wouldn't visit. Yes. Um, for the clients that don't want to open up, it's a lot of patience, yeah. a lot of sessions about next to nothing and then bringing it to their attention and saying like, Hey, I've realized we've only talked about movies for the last two months. Like, I'm wondering if there's a different reason you came into therapy or something else you want to talk about. Um, and sometimes I get defended and then I know I'm moving too fast yeah. and sometimes I open up and then I know that I'm in the right place. See. And I guess I'm kind of curious to those clients because I guess they come because they know something's wrong and they know they're not right, mm -hmm. even though they don't want to open up. Would mm -hmm. you say that's so common? Those clients usually come in for loneliness. They'll say, I am feeling lonely across the board. I feel disconnected and I have no idea what's going on. And they'll say it in their first session and then they don't say it again for months. And then you just have to wait and wait until they're ready. Because if you said right then and there, well, you're avoiding connection, they'd be like, no, I'm doing everything I can for connection. I'm talking about movies. I'm talking about things you're interested in. I'm trying to like engage you. And they don't realize that that's like a very surface level connection. There's so much that's missing because deeper connection is terrifying for them. Wow. And if they're not doing that with you, definitely not doing it in their personal lives. And totally, yeah. Like. A it's so funny because like cognitively, you know, oh, therapy is supposed to be safe, mm -hmm. but emotionally gaining that trust takes forever. So yeah. you just have to be patient. And this is kind of, I guess, leaning on that same kind of subject and like insecurities, I guess. Uh -huh. how, how often do you think some your clients are aware of those? Because obviously that's a main part of uh, working on relationships with people, with yourself. Do you think a lot of people are self-aware of their own insecurities? That's a really good question. I don't know. I'd say it's probably split across the board, uh -huh. um, like 50-50. Some people are aware. I notice the clients that say they're really self-aware are usually the least self-aware clients, um, just because it's like a different type of self-awareness. Um, and a lot of the time, they're they um, misconstrue anxiety as self-awareness. So they're like, no, I'm always thinking about the people around me, but actually they're just thinking about how the people around them perceive oh, them. Yeah. And it's really just a projection of how people, how you think that people perceive you. And it's not really self-awareness. It's just mm -hmm. like, ah, I'm so scared all the time. Yeah. Cause I didn't realize how important that it, and I feel like that's a big issue that we just forget for people to address. Cause I, the younger I was, I remember, you know, I didn't think adults had insecurities. And then as you become a young adult, you don't think older adults have insecurities. And the older you get, mm -hmm. you're just like, no, they're always mm -hmm. here. And as long as you're working on addressing them, that's, I feel like one of the best ways to kind of yeah. work on yourself. Totally. Um, for the clients, like they'll say, the ones who come in saying I'm really self-aware but have all these insecurities that they don't know about, as they shift, they'll be like, oh, it turns out I'm not self-aware and I have all these insecurities. Yeah. Um, and now that I'm realizing them, I guess I guess the only thing to do is to work on them even though it's uncomfortable. But they usually make a lot of progress. Yeah. And the hypo and hyper, all these people, how are they willing to put in the work? I know they're coming to therapy. I mean, 
And that's only, I don't even know how often they see you, whether it's once a month, once every eight weeks, once a week, but are they trying to put in the work outside of therapy as well and do stuff on their own? Or how often are they just thinking they can show up and you're supposed to fix them? Like, you know, yeah, those are, those are tough clients. Um, I see my clients once a week, mostly. I have a couple of biweekly yeah. clients. Um, most of them are willing to do the work. There are a few every now and then who get really frustrated with me because I haven't fixed them yet. Um, and that's a bummer, but it also gives me really good information because it tells, this again is like people who come in with loneliness who are typically avoidant yeah. um, and who don't want to, or who like, do have a pattern of blaming other people for their problems, um, which again is a coping skill and a defense because anything else would be really scary and would carry a lot of other feelings that come with it. Um, so I find that everybody is able to work on their own shit in their own way, um, but some people it takes a lot longer than others. How do you get, you talked about the owning, how do you get people to own their part in whatever problem they have with someone without especially because they're coming to therapy and they're being vulnerable without making them even more like the bad guy this is something I really struggle with mm. um I remember when I first started being a therapist and I was going to supervision with one of my supervisors and I was like I see what's happening in their life I see what's hurting them and it's their own behavior and I don't I'm, I'm too nervous to confront them like I don't want to hurt their mm. feelings and she was like, she said something along the lines of, first, you're doing a disservice by not confronting them. And two, if you don't look at it as confrontation, instead, look at it as observing, like you're literally just observing what they're telling you and then regurgitating it back to them. Usually clients have the insight to say like, oh, maybe I am, for example, treating women poorly to avoid emotional intimacy. Yeah. Um, and I had no, like, they really have no idea. And when they realize it, sometimes they're defended. Again, that probably means I'm moving too fast. And sometimes they're a lot more open to it. But it takes time. Yeah. Again, there's got to be that trust. Yeah. And yeah, you just got to go for it, even if yeah, you're going to be scared too. But you know, mm -hmm. like you said, you're doing a disservice if you don't address it. Right. And that's what makes therapy so fun. <laughs> you can kind of engage with people and um, learn what works and learn what doesn't, and they'll tell you what's working and what doesn't, and you can readjust. It's always a learning curve. Yeah. I like to tell people, like, when you're going, like, take notes throughout your life, just because, you know, so you know exactly how you're feeling, what you're going through daily, and then yeah. that back at therapy, because it, it's hard to remember everything that you've been feeling over the week, or if you only go once a month for just mm -hmm. now back again for like 40 minutes or an hour, remember everything you went through. Totally. Um, and I, I also ask clients to do that because I think that's a great idea. Um, so again, some of them do. The more avoidant ones do not. <laughs> do you usually leave them with homework every week to try and work on something or something like that? I'm not big on homework. Um, it depends on Some of my clients ask me for homework. If they ask, I'll always give it to them. Yeah. Um, but if they don't, I'm really not big on homework other than writing down what you want to talk about or um, if you notice something that we talk about comes up during your week, try to bring it in. Okay. Oh, that's good. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, I guess we talked a little bit about their uh, willingness to work and 
do you usually have to bring in another party into a session with someone if the like a special session or something like that have you ever had to do that i have had to do that but it's pretty rare um i'm trying to remember when i have like when i was doing um work at a trauma clinic we would do a lot of family sessions but those were more um expected now with my private practice i've one of my clients asked to bring in her husband one time um, and it was really focused on her confidence and finances and things that he just wasn't understanding okay. um, and how it was related to her past and her trauma history and her parents, et cetera. Um, so that's really the only time that's happened. Oh. All right. We're, we're going to be wrapping up a little bit. So, sure. all right. Um, my favorite parts. I love when I feel really connected to my clients, when I can like say something like, um, I noticed you really dismissed me in that moment. What was, what was going on for you? And they can say like, oh, well, I felt you were attacking me and I can help them process. Like, Do you feel like that was coming from me or from your past? How can we kind of break that down? Um, so I love that. And I also love helping my clients see the strengths in their vulnerabilities. So like in all their symptoms, in their avoidance, in their disconnection, or in their hypervigilance, in their anxiety, like all of that is there to help you survive and cope with the world, this freaking chaos world around us. Um, and that just, that's the whole reason I went into it in the first place. So my clients just feel so validated when they realize that, and it's something they hold on and use to get rid of that negative self-talk. Oh, that's awesome. I think we need like a million more of you. That's yeah. <laughs> Thanks, JD. Yeah, I love it. And now you, you've been in New York through the whole, through COVID and everything. How optimistic are you for the future of New York City? Just finishing on that. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I'm actually moving to North Carolina. Um, oh, wow. I know. Okay. Not because I'm keeping my private practice virtual. Not because New York is I'm actually pretty hopeful for New York. Um, I'm not yeah, sure most leaving. people say the same, no. but I feel good about it. Yeah, my partner got into school down there, so we're going together. Okay. Um, I'd love to stay, but I got to give it two years and then oh. I'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully North Carolina is fun. That's where I was born. So, you know. Oh, yeah. I don't know much about it, though. I was like born and then uh -huh. shipped away. So, yeah, not, not really. Oh, no. I remember us talking about this, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll keep you posted. I don't yeah. know much about it either. I've never been. <laughs> what part are y'all moving to? Durham. Durham. Okay, nice. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully some um, like progressives over there, which I know are hard to come by in North Carolina. So that's what's, yeah, that whole, yeah, that whole region. That's why I uh, don't want to go back to the South. I'm with you. Um, temporary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank well, you for, joining. for having me. Oh, no, it was awesome. I, I yeah. wish I could have had better questions, too, so let you ramble on a little more. Oh, no, you are awesome. I hope I didn't ramble too much. I know I get I get caught up and excited about it, and then I just talk. All, All right. right, well, thank you. You're welcome. You have a good day, okay? All right, you too. All right, bye. Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed that. That's all that we have for you today on a Modern Man podcast. Remember... No Moral Monday. I'm coming to you every Wednesday. New podcast every Wednesday, once a week. You can catch me every Friday, Fargo Watch Party with Stephen Merriweather. 
And then on Mondays, check out Brianna Donnell. If you, if you got anyone that wants to listen to a modern woman speak, speak some real shit, check out check out Brie. She's going to have Emily, who I love Emily to death. She's awesome. I think she's going to have her on there a few episodes. But we're presented to you all by the Modern Podcast Network. Like, subscribe, rate, review. I'll see you next week.